0: Glory, what is glory? And what does glory do for us? Does it do anything or is it just the honor gained from war or accomplishment? We use the term glory frequently in Christian circles as jargon. But how often do we consider what glory really is? This morning we're going to meditate upon glory and upon this text. And if you're like me, actually, glory might not come naturally. Maybe it's not a concept that's easy to describe. After all, describing glory is kind of like describing a feeling. You can't describe it unless you tie it to a story. If you're like me, then maybe you haven't considered what glory means, or what the implications of glory are, or what it might what we might lose if we don't pause to consider what it is. And this passage this morning is actually looking at glory as a significant topic with great weight to it. If you feel as if you lack boldness, if you desire transformation, if you're not sure what glory really is, or if you need to be reminded of your hope, then Paul's text to us today is very important. So let's dive into it. It's 2 Corinthians 3, chapter 7 through 18. Let's read it together and consider God's word. It is true, and it was given to you in love. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. My Lord, use the words you have given us, these scriptures, to minister to my own heart and use them to minister to all of us today. Give us boldness as we set our hope upon you. Stretch our minds as we consider what glory is. Help us to praise you with zeal, knowing that you are the master storyteller and the creator of the cosmos. All praise, glory, and honor are yours forevermore. Amen. This text this morning hints at Paul's theology of glory and is at first glance quite confusing. It is, some commentators noted, it's one of the most debated Pauline texts that we can find. But the truth that it's pointing to is profound. And so there are two main points that we're going to go through this morning from this text. And the first point is titled, Unveiling Glory, Glory's Grand Unveiling. Here, Paul uses Moses and the law to illustrate the point that glory has been revealed throughout time in a series of events. The second point is titled, Beholding Glory, and it has to do with what glory does to and for us. So let's dive into the first point, glory's grand unveiling. Now things that are glorious are actually worthy of being unveiled. The dramatic flourish of the removal of a veil enhances the grandeur of the thing that was veiled. When an artist has spent years or decades of their life fine-tuning or mastering a painting, or a sculpture, they don't simply hide it away in their living room, or in their bedroom, or in a closet, or putting it on a mantelpiece. Rather, they create a celebration. They put it in a storefront or something of that sort, and they put a veil over it, and they invite all their friends, and they unveil it, and it makes it more grand. They make a ceremony out of it. Likewise, the same thing happens in theater. You have a curtain, the curtain is drawn, and it's opened so that the beginning may be even more glorious. And God actually does the exact same thing in the scriptures. Throughout the scriptures, he has been unveiling his glory, event by event. In the Bible, God meets with several very important figures, such as Adam, Moses, Noah, Abraham, David... And each time, he makes very specific relational promises to them and to all people through them. These meetings and promises are called covenants. And each of these meetings revealed some of God's glory. And each of these promises built upon each other to point forward to Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises. This grand narrative tells the story of the setting of the stage for when Jesus would come. And indeed, he has. And that's what Paul is pointing to. And why, some of you might be thinking, why is this guy talking about stories and covenants? And, and the reason is because in this text that we just read, he is quoting back to Exodus 34, 29 through 30, when Moses went up Mount Sinai with two tablets of stone and he came down with God's inscription on them, and when he came down from the mountain, he found that his face was actually shining, shining, kind of bizarre, kind of crazy. And it was a fearsome thing. And I looked it up in the Hebrew because I was like, "Oh, well, it's, you know maybe his face was oily with sweat, and the sun was beating on it, and it was kind of reflecting. but actually, no, shining it means emanating from light emanating from a certain point. So kind of like a light bulb, right? So here's a picture for glory. And Paul is using it to say that what we receive is even greater. And the Old Testament also looked forward to the day when we would have what we have in the New Covenant. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I've never seen anybody's face shine like a light bulb. And if you said that you had, I, I might points you in the direction of an optometrist, because it's kind of bizarre. But we really do have something greater. The authors of the Old Testament knew the future would hold a much greater thing. Consider Jeremiah 31 through 30, a text that this Paul is also alluding to, where he says, For this is the covenant that I will make within the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And this is the glory of the new covenant that we live in, and it's profound. The law is written on our hearts, and we are forgiven of all of our debts. So the law, sidetrack a little bit, reveals faults, much like a mirror, and if you look at your face in a mirror and you see a smudge, you don't try to clean your face with the mirror. That would be disastrous. So the people were looking forward to the time when Jesus, the Messiah, the future hope, the fulfillment of all the promises would come and actually clean them. But the law had to reveal the need for cleansing in order to know the need that we have for Jesus. So Paul is illustrating an increasing glory of some sort or another. To illustrate his illustration, you could consider a cave, right? If you are in a dark, gloomy, dingy cave and there is no light whatsoever and you strike a match, the light from that little match will emanate to all the corners of that cave. And it's a magnificent thing. But let's say you have, you know, 10, 15, 20 floodlights that you've set up in that cave and they all have 2,000 lumens and it's super bright and you turn them on and you light a match, you're not even going to see the flame of that match. You're not going to see it at all. And so Paul here is addressing a group of people who are still clinging to the match when there are floodlights around. And they're saying, look at the glory of the match. But really, there's something greater Paul was addressing people who rejected the profound glory of the new covenant, a people who were settling for the glory of the law and rejecting the point of the law and the way in which Jesus fulfilled them. That was not the freedom that they were looking forward to. So that's why he's addressing it. Now, glory, I've used the word like 20 times now, and we still haven't described it. It may still seem like a distant topic but it's actually highly relevant to us. Because at the center of glory is actually the person, Jesus. Understanding the way in which Jesus is the center of glory aligns us to what it means to experience glory. What it means to love each other. Since the time that sin entered the world, our patient, steadfast, loving God has been planning the restoration of his people, weaving all things together to Jesus to redeem, claim, and cleanse for himself a people. And here you are. This glory is glory in its proper context. This is Jesus. And we still haven't defined glory because just like Paul here, we had to first establish that Jesus' glory is seen most clearly when he's viewed as the center of the story and how he fulfills the story itself. So Jesus is actually glory unveiled, and it is a grand story. But now we turn our minds to defining glory. I just want to say, to preface this, I'm guilty of something. This week, even, I said... I don't want glory, and I also said glory in a throwaway sort of way. Glory is not a throwaway term. In the Greek, it's doxa, and it means one of two things. The first category that it has meaning in is radiance, which is honor, or I'm sorry, it's light, beauty, majesty, or splendor. In other words, the things that take our breath away and give us awe. The second category is renown, which is fame, prestige, honor, distinction, and acclaim. These are the things that make us fall to our knees or bow down or worship or realize that there's something greater than us. C.S. Lewis uses these two categories in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, which I'm going to quote quite a bit, because anything I can say, C.S. Lewis probably says it a little bit better. Uh, He uses these to argue that glory is exactly what we desire. And I'm going to attempt to unfold why in this next point. Point two, beholding glory unveiled. Let's read verses 16 through 18 again. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul notes something really profound here. I'm just going to touch on it and then move on. That the, To turn to the Lord is actually to turn to the Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit is, there Jesus is known, revealed, proclaimed, and active. And indeed, it takes a miracle. It takes the work of God himself to turn our faces, our attentions, away from weak, pitiful glories, have no substance or weight to them, to glories that are profound and beautiful and full of honor, to Jesus himself, we may only turn to the Lord and see him through his works. C.S. Lewis says this about the matter, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem That our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday At the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are offered infinite joy, and yet we are far too easily pleased. And I just know that I am guilty of this. My desires are often misplaced, feeding my ego rather than humility and looking to Jesus, who put on humility, feeding my narcissism rather than pouring out love like God himself came in the flesh and loved people and sacrificed himself. But there is hope for me and there's hope for you if you feel like some of those are true of you as well. Because this passage is saying that if you are unveiled, then you will behold his glory. It is a certainty and God will bring it about. You see, while it's good to consider things like spiritual disciplines, like meditation, meditation, prayer, fasting, reading the scriptures, etc., etc., this passage is actually offering a greater hope, a hope that is quite relevant to us because it has nothing to do with our ability. If you have turned to the Lord, you are unveiled. It comes from His grace and love alone and has nothing to do with your capacity. You do not need to be troubled with fear. Rather, be encouraged with hope. If you proclaim Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are beholding the glory of the Lord, and he will be faithful to draw you near. When you behold the glory of Jesus, you're actually seeing something incredible. You're seeing majesty, radiance, fame, honor, beauty on a cosmic scale. If you have been unveiled, then actually seeing and beholding Jesus will shape the way that you see everything else. It shapes the way that we see the scriptures. Shapes the way that we read. It Shapes the way that we see creation. The birds and the lakes and the oceans and the mountains. It shapes the way that we see the Lord's Supper and baptism. Shapes the way we see sacraments. It shapes the way that we see each other as well. Here in the church. But not only will you behold the glory of God, which you desire at the deepest core of your soul, but you'll also be transformed by beholding his glory. Beholding glory is actually the crucible of transformation. We are a people who become what we behold. We are a people who become what we behold. C.S. Lewis says this about this concept of transformation It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare." All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, ignore, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Paul and C.S. Lewis are pointing to this truth that we desire transformation preferably to one end. We all desire to be transformed. We want to be free from sin. We want to eat, to play, to work, to worship in a world without death or suffering where all is restored in the presence of God himself. We want to be held by the God who knit us and knows us intimately. We want to be honored and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to be wooed and fought for by him who knows us with all our faults and all of our failures. We want to work for a good cause and find satisfaction in our toil. And actually, the profound thing is that God has brought all these things to you and is bringing them to you in more fullness even now, even today. And it's all wrapped up in the historical person, Jesus, who really lived, who really died, who really was resurrected, and who is really ministering to you today and has been ministering to you and will continue to minister to you. This is a greater glory. But this text also nuances the matter by saying that we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. I think that's verse 17 or 18. And about this, I just want to say it's a, actually a, a false humility and a passive neglect that causes someone to say, I don't want glory. It stems only from ignorance and a misunderstanding of rewards. And I say this boldly and maybe too harshly, knowing that I've done the same thing this week. <laughs> in fact, in a conversation with Christina, I said, I don't know about all this, I don't want glory. But really, what it is, is, is we're supposed to desire glory, so be it the glory that God desires for us, the glory that God is transforming us to, a fierce glory rather than the pitiful weak glories or imitations of glory that we so often pursue. Let us set our minds upon objects that seek not to consume us and turn us from glory, but on the beauty of glory the majesty of glory, the radiance of glory, which is found in Jesus. Let us become a people who are marked by a humble desire for glory and a people who are marked by a hope in and pursuit of transformation that God has for us. Now, some of you might have a picture in your mind of what it looks like to seek transformation I know that I do. Some of us might think of Walden's Pond, for example, of escaping to find a place to meditate, to be absent so that in some strange way we can meditate on God's goodness. And I think there's a time for escapism. But actually what we learn from Paul is that seeking glory doesn't look like becoming a solemn, downcast person who is perpetually absent from those around him. It doesn't mean we become a people who deny every enjoyable thing so that in some absent spiritual sense, we may think about Jesus. Rather, it looks like a balanced life of enjoying what is received, giving with glad hearts, delighting when there is abundance, and being content when there is lack. It means finding time alone so that our time with each other is intensified with love. It means pursuing the good things that God has for us at all times and seeking to understand his hand in it. It means being captured by the story of the scriptures. It means being committed to the church. In other words, it looks like intentionality. Intentionally seeking God out in everything might sound exhausting, but actually it is a fulfilling, intensifying practice to participate in. This is a profound way to live, and as the passage says, it's a profound hope for the future, to know that one day we will be transformed into the same image, to the likeness of Jesus. This, all of this, is why Paul says in verse 12, we are very bold, which also means open, fearless, confident, We receive these things, freedom, boldness, fearlessness, confidence, as we behold Jesus, who embodies glory. This is the path to love and glory. And this is what glory does to and for us. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to say You're turning away from every glory that your heart actually desires, which is affection, love, genuine transformation, hope, and true confidence. Don't cast these incredible things away for trinkets. The trinkets don't satisfy. I pray, rather, that you would consider turning to Jesus, and considering him throughout this week. If you are a Christian here this morning, then you have an incredible hope. Your hope rests in the permanence of what Jesus has done, not in some temporary experience that passes or is fleeting, but Jesus has lifted the veil from your eyes, and you are free and no longer a slave to legalism, to earning your salvation, or to rebellion to throwing everything out. So if you come here this morning, downcast, frustrated with your vocation, struggling with your family, figuring things out, feeling hopeless, I just want to say, consider this text, because Paul offers us something profound, wrapped up in the person who is Jesus. And in him, we take our hope. Our God is not aloof, he's not far away, nor is he flippant, he actually loves and cares for you deeply. And he will see his good will done in your life so that one day your pains and your suffering may be transfigured and you may delight in the true weight of glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would use my flawed words and meditations on your scriptures to make an impact on your world and on our affections. Draw us to consider your glory, to pursue the glory that you have for us so that when we stand before you and death is swallowed up in victory, we may boldly proclaim your goodness and be welcomed into your love. Set our minds on greater things It is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.